0: throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. Well, Courtney, this is the episode we planned as a commemoration of the horrific 1921 Tulsa Massacre that raged from May 31st to June 1st, 1921. But we do that within the context of the racially motivated violence in Buffalo, New York, where 10 people were murdered and three injured.
1: Honestly, it makes me sad and a bit angry that these things are still happening, Aunt Carol. Just a couple of days ago, we learned about another shooting in a school in Uvalde, Texas. So that'll be another anniversary of violence as well as commemorating and honoring the memory of George Floyd, but remembering what started this podcast and this why are they so angry movement two years ago, the unfortunate murder of George Floyd at the hands of police. Now, what was supposed to be a a happy night, and I'll jump over to our actual topic, what was supposed to be a happy night in Oklahoma in 1921 in the Greenwood District, a.k.a. Black Wall Street, was a quiet day, just like those who were grocery shopping in Buffalo and the kids who were going to school a century later. It's even eerie that all these dates are just coinciding.
0: That is, it is eerie. It seems like May is a time of bloodshed and mayhem. Now, according to the NBC reporter Char Adams, experts say the Buffalo shooting must be viewed within the context of both historical racist backlash to black existence and the white supremacist violence that has increasingly become normalized in this country. The Buffalo shooting is not a dangerous turning point for the country, but a continuation of the broad violence Black people in the U.S. have experienced for centuries.
1: So true. Our listeners will remember our Red Summer series last year, as well as many episodes where we've just covered violence thrust on Black towns and neighborhoods for simply wanting to exist in America.
0: Yeah, that that episode was sad, and, you know, it's unfortunate that we still return to this business of violence committed against people who don't look like other people. Now, there was a slight glimmer of hope, though, related to the Tulsa massacre. A philanthropist has given $1 million to the Tulsa Race Massacre survivors, Viola Fletcher, who's 108 use Uncle Red Van Ellis, who's 101, and Leslie Benningfield Randall, Randall, who's 107. But Courtney, in spite of this generosity, the survivors and their descendants still have not received reparations for their losses, millions of dollars and hundreds of lives.
1: And in my mind, it will never, ever be enough, even though the Tulsa Massacre is being brought back into the spotlight with shows like HBO's Watchmen and Lovecraft Country, as well as documentaries and other ways of remembering um, what took place 100 years ago. Um, a lot of mainstream America still doesn't know what actually happened. And it wasn't until February 2020, and despite a lot of pushback, that Oklahoma mandated that schools talk and teach about the massacre through from elementary to 12th grade. And that's just another thing that's sad. That is American history. That's Oklahoma history. And the fact that it's taken so long to actually be mandated to be taught with no excuses is it's a disturbing thought.
0: Well, you're right, Courtney, that it's taken so long to uh, get that history. It's been hidden for the most part. So Let's refresh our listeners' memories about the Tulsa Race Massacre, exactly what happened during those fateful two days of mayhem that left thousands of Black people dead or homeless, and an entire prosperous section of the town Obliterated?
1: Well, the Great Migration is a subject that we have covered many times in this podcast and in several books in our learning community. And we always recommend The Warmth of Other Suns if you want to get a refresher course on the Great Migration. But something many people may not know is that despite the large push uh, push north and far west, Aunt Carol, many African-Americans stayed close to home and built communities of their own and they thrived. But sadly, as our listeners have learned from podcast after podcast, these locations became targets for white violence as successful as they became. And Greenwood, Oklahoma was no exception. Um, Like I said before, many TV shows, books, movies, articles have covered the Tulsa race riot. And I think of it as a trendy thing to cover. Um, So it may go out of fashion, but it's not going to go out of fashion here. And I hope today's story, even though the Tulsa story is being told, you get a little bit more insight on not just the massacre itself, but what was lost. Now, Tulsa, Oklahoma was booming with oil. You think Texas is booming with oil. Uh, Oklahoma was the largest producer of oil at this time in America. So steady work and good wages was like a clarion call to African-Americans who wanted to take a slice of the pie uh, called the American dream. Now, for Black Americans living in Oklahoma, that pie wasn't always sweet. When Oklahoma achieved statehood in 1907, segregationist Democrats, and we mean the old-fashioned Democrats, I always have to clarify that, the old-school Democrats, led by white supremacist Bill Alfalfa Murray, passed laws that criminalized interracial marriage and prohibited African Americans from obtaining high-wage jobs. But stepping onto the scene around the same time were two wealthy Black businessmen, one by the name of Ottawa W. Gurley, aka O.W., O.W. Gurley, and John the Baptist Stratford, aka J.B. Stratford. They came in with the idea of creating Greenwood. And just to clarify, O.W. Gurley was the man who created Greenwood. J.B. stepped in after him, but O.W. and the story of how he obtained his land in that town is an amazing story within itself. But these two men were the prominent um, gentlemen in the town. Now, if you're wondering why these gentlemen chose to and why I will continue to use their initials and not their full names, for them and a lot of Black men during this time, using just your initials as your name was a silent sign of resistance and protest. Because back then, white men refused to call Black men Mr. Smith or Mr. Jones, they would simply just directly call them by their first name or boy regardless of age. So by using their initials, O.W. and J.B. and many other Black men at the time circumvented this practice by just using
0: their initials. Well, you know, Courtney, that's an interesting piece of information because uh, my uncle, who would be your uncle, uh, he went by the initials O.D. and he was from the South. And so I'm sure that he chose to uh, use those two initials for that very reason.
1: And I think that's I think we're going to be correct on that fact, because many men did it in my research. Most of the prominent uh, black men who were at would be considered today millionaires would only go by their initials. Now, when O.W. Gurley arrived in Oklahoma in 1899, get this, his net worth in today's money was four million dollars. He was worth four million dollars in our money.
0: Mm, wow.
1: Now, he had obtained 40 acres and built several rooming houses in a location on Greenwood Avenue, and he named it um, Greenwood Avenue based on the city in Mississippi where many of his rooming house tenants hailed from. So you can see that first wave of the great migration coming into Tulsa, and they were coming from places like Greenwood, Mississippi. Now, Greenwood was right across the tracks from the white side of town. It was right across the Frisco Railroad tracks. And soon the entire area was known as Greenwood, which would become the site for a African Methodist Episcopal church or an AME church. J.B. Stratford's crowning achievement was the Stratford Hotel on 301 North Greenwood. At the time, it was the largest Black-owned hotel in America with 54 suites, a gambling hall, dining room, saloon, and pool hall. And Stratford had built his hotel to be equal in luxury to the finest white lodgings in Tulsa. And it stood as a monument to show that uh, Black people deserved luxury and would be in luxury. Now, at the time of the massacre, that hotel was worth, in today's money, $2.5 million. That's
0: staggering.
1: Yes. And it what people talk about in articles, how luxurious it was. And some people say that it topped the white establishments in Tulsa in its luxury, beauty, and accommodations. Mm. Now, this Black-centric community of 10,000 residents was called Little Africa by the white residents of Tulsa that, like I said, just lived over the Frisco Railroad tracks. And it was a place where technically Black men and women were shielded from a lot of the racial hostilities they would experience in Tulsa and other places. Now, if white people made threatening racist remarks while in Greenwood, Black residents often responded very aggressively. Now, for example, in 1909, J.B. Stratford was walking along Greenwood Avenue when a white delivery man uttered a racist insult, and it prompted him to throw the man to the ground, straddle him, punch him in the face until he was bloody and he was criminally charged for the beating, but eventually was acquitted. I
0: tell you, he didn't take any stuff in on his territory, that's for sure. And
1: it wasn't a rarity. It wasn't just him. White people knew if you came alone or you wanted to start some mess in Greenwood, these people were not going to back down. They were going to stand up for themselves, which we'll discuss a little bit later in the second part of the story. Now, because Blacks weren't allowed to shop in the white areas of Tulsa, much of the money remained in the Black community, and that's what caused it to flourish. So think of places like uh, Greektown or Little Italy or, or places like that. It was that in Oklahoma. The dollar just circulated within the town, causing it to become more and more affluent. Now, when the educator Booker T. Washington visited in 1906, he referred to Greenwood as Negro Wall Street. Now, before I get into explaining the massacre, let me explain what was there and what was destroyed so our listeners get that devastating grasp of what's to come. Now, by 1920, a walk through Black Wall Street meant traversing more than 35 bustling city blocks, with the epicenter being the intersection of Greenwood Avenue and Archer Street, adjacent to the railroad tracks. The Acme Brick Company supplied the building materials to the townhouses and apartments. There were theaters, more than one hotel, not just the Stratford, that lined the streets. And in 1910, Black bricklayers had created their own trade union, the Hod Carrier's Local 199.
0: So in essence, Courtney, when we think about Black Wall Street, the Greenwood area of Oklahoma, uh, of, of Tulsa, Oklahoma, this was a thriving, wealthy, prosperous area. It wasn't a couple of streets. This was a town, basically,
1: this was a town that was turning into a city and it was starting with generational wealth because people started coming as early as 1899. So you have to think by 1920, these the children in this town were used to seeing doctors, dentists, millionaires. They were used to seeing their parents go to lavish nights at the Stratford Hotel. They knew nothing of the struggle that sometimes I think historians or stuff that we see on tv of the black experience during the 20s these children in Greenwood knew nothing of that yes there may have been poorer people in the town but a, there was middle class there was wealthy um entrepreneurs began to emerge like John Williams and his wife Lula they had a confectioner store and erected the opulent dreamland theater Simon Berry built a private transportation network of Model T Fords and buses because he knew taking uh, African American citizens of Greenwood into Tulsa, they would have so many issues on public transportation, but they didn't need it. They could get into a Model T and get dropped off of work if they worked in the white portion of Tulsa. If they did, you know, if they were maids or domestic workers, they could ride a Model T into town, ride a bus into town. And they wouldn't have to worry about dealing with segregation.
0: Wow. They, they made their own neighborhood. They made their own city. They, this, I, I, again, what you're sharing with us, Courtney, is important to know. Because when we hear a, about the massacre, we need to understand the extent of damage and destruction that happened as a result of racial strife.
1: Exactly. Now, back to the Berries, they began chartering, get this, airplanes for Tulsa's increasingly wealthy oilmen. So they had planes that would take people to Dallas, to Houston, to anywhere they needed to go.
0: I'm I'm just amazed. I I can't imagine that kind of wealth, that kind of uh, business and uh, acumen and entrepreneurship at the turn of the century. I, I'm, in, I'm so impressed.
1: Now, even though their population was small, Greenwood also had two newspapers that included the Tulsa Star founded by A.J. Smitherman. There were pool halls, auto repair shops, beauty parlors, grocery stores, barber shops, funeral homes. And this is in the plurals, not just one. There was a YMCA, a roller skating rink, a hospital, a post office substation. It, cal- it was calculated that a A dollar spent in Greenwood flipped over 30 times before it left.
0: And that's exactly why and how businesses thrive in a community when the money is kept in the community. Wow.
1: Now, along with this massive prosperity, the community invested, like I said, in houses of worship. Greenfoot, Greenwood had the Mount Zion Baptist Church built in 1909. The district had its own high school named after Booker T. Washington, which boasted a curriculum that would prepare these students to eventually study in colleges like Columbia and New York. Oberlin in Ohio, and historically Black colleges such as Hampton, Tuskegee, and Spelman. The freshmen in high school studied algebra, Latin, ancient history, as well as core subjects like English, science, art, and music. The sophomores took economics and geometry, while juniors were taking advanced chemistry and trade-oriented subjects such as civics, business spelling. The seniors studied physics, trigonometry as well as vocal music, art and bookkeeping. It was and it's also important to note that education was was key in this town and teachers were upwardly mo- mobile and they were among the highest paid workers in
0: Greenwood. So that shows us uh, you know the overall respect and um, honor that they held for teachers and education.
1: That's right. Many teachers had pianos in their apartments. And back then that was a big deal. My grandparents had a piano in the basement for who was going to learn to play it. I don't know. (laughs) I did. I (laughs) did. Learning about that was a status symbol. And the school's principal, E.W. Woods, lived in a six-room
0: townhouse. My goodness.
1: I find it sort of poetic to stop part one with talking about the high school because what was supposed to be prom night for those students at Booker T. Washington High School in May of 1921 turned into the Tulsa Race Massacre.
0: Oh my, Courtney, I have many happy memories of my prom night and I can't imagine having such a normal, innocent rite of passage marred by violence. So, Let's take a break and a deep breath before hearing what happened that fateful night in May. Want to learn more about systemic racism? Or maybe you want to leave us a comment, rate our show, subscribe, get lots of swag, or reach out to us on social media. Well, you can. Go to our website, www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry?, and connect with Courtney and me. You can even sign up to take our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. All that waiting for you at www.podpage.com. Why are they so angry? See you there. Well, Courtney, when we left off, we heard about the impressive prosperity of Black people in the Greenwood district of Tulsa. And we also learned that the neighborhood was looking forward, or I should say the city, uh, was looking forward to a joyous tradition.
1: Exactly. And not only, I'll put this out there too, it was Memorial Day weekend and prom. And I remember my prom, so I can only imagine how jittery and excited everyone was so now I want the listeners and all of us to get into our time machine so I can take you back to May 30th, 1921. And like I said, for most of the Black teens in Greenwood, Oklahoma, they would be preparing for prom and that would be taking place later in the evening. So imagine the girls at many of the beauty parlors, the boys at many of the barbershops, adults maybe having the day off because it was Memorial Day and little kids just excited to have a day off and maybe see their older siblings, cousins, or friends off to the prom that would be held at the Strat. Hotel. Now, Monday, May 30th, that's the day we are here. 19-year-old Dick Rowland, a shoe shiner who worked at the Drexel building in Tulsa, entered the elevator to take the trip all the way to the top floor to the only colored bathroom that was located in the building. That's where he encountered Sarah Page. She was the 17-year-old elevator op, operator. Now, no one knows the, you know, the spectrum of how well these two knew each other. There are rumors that there was a romance, which was never corroborated, but at least they would know each other by sight because they worked in the same building. Now, in an instant, Sarah is heard screaming and Dick is seen running out of the elevator and out of the building. Now, the clerk from the Rosenberg's clothing store, which was in the first floor of the Drexel building, runs to Sarah's aid, And in a case of doing extremely too much, he assumes that she has been raped because he found her distraught and calls the police and claims that there's been a sexual assault.
0: Wow, that's a major leap. Uh, Somebody screaming and running out of the (laughs) elevator and it must have been rape. Well, okay.
1: Now, although the police questioned Sarah Page, there's no written account of her statement that was found anywhere, but apparently she told the police that Roland grabbed her arm and nothing more, and she didn't want to press charges. Now, however, the police determined what happened between the two teenagers was something less than assault. It wasn't a sexual assault. It wasn't a violent assault, but they needed to to get Dick and figure out what happened. Now, the authorities conducted a low key investigation rather than launching a manhunt for the assailant. Now, regardless um, of, you know, if what happened, Roland knew to be afraid. African-American men accused of raping or even touching or talking to sometimes white women were often targets for lynch mobs. Now, realizing the gravity of this situation, he ran to his mother's house in the Greenwood neighborhood. Now, in future investigations done and this by the Tulsa Race Commission, it was determined that Dick Rowland probably just tripped and naturally reached out to grab Sarah to break his fall. Hmm.
0: That's a that would be a typical thing to do, but obviously typical things at that time period often led to di- disastrous outcomes.
1: Now here we are Tuesday, May 31st, 1921, the morning after the incident. Henry Carmichael, a white detective, and Henry C. Pack, uh, the only black patrolman of the Tulsa Police Force, locate uh, Roland in Greenwood and detain him. Pack was one of the, I'm sorry, I said one, but one of the two officers in the city's police force, but he was not, you know, in the police force in Greenwood. Now, Roland initially was taken to the Tulsa City Jail at the corner of First and Main Street. Now, remember, Greenwood and Tulsa are just separated by railroad tracks. There's no sign, no anything. So things kind of mesh together. Now, by 3 p.m., editions of the Tulsa Tribune, which is the white newspaper, publishes a front page story about the incident with a headline saying nab Negro for attacking girl in elevator. Mm. At 4 p.m., an anonymous caller calls the police station and says, we're going to lynch that Negro his information was passed on. No, they didn't go and find the person at all. You're of calling to threat the, threaten the, the police chief. Mm. But the information, the note was passed on to police commissioner, J.M. Adkinson. And at this point, Dick Rowland is moved to a mute, more secure jail at the top floor of the Tulsa County Courthouse. But that normally, that, that doesn't guarantee safety. And we've learned that several times.
0: Oh, no, no. Remember, I believe it's uh, in a city in Texas, they burned down the um, the actual jailhouse in order to get out a guy who was accused of raping a woman. So, and in hey.
1: Dallas, they pulled the man out the window yep. of, the, of the courthouse.
0: So, yeah, so I was, going to jail isn't safe. In now,
1: fact, it's se- probably not what you want to have happen it, at, at all. Now by 7:30, sunset has the sun's beginning to set. Now, several hundred white residents are gathered outside of the courthouse, which has concerned William M. McCullough, who is the new sheriff. Now, a few weeks before, I don't know what's going on in Oklahoma because they lynched a white man. So yeah, so he's he's more worried about them getting a hold to, to Dick Rowland because of of what happened before. And so he did not want that on his watch. And he was terrified. He, both the sheriff and Dick Roland were terrified that they were going to get a hold to him. So the sheriff refused, refused to let the people in because they were saying, bring them out, bring them out, bring them out. So he positioned six of his men armed with rifles and shotguns on the roof of the courthouse and he disabled the elevator because remember, Dick is on the top floor in the jail of the courthouse. So his thing is if I have men on the roof and I barricade us in here and I turn off the elevator, we'll be good. Now, meanwhile... In Greenwood, a few blocks away, the black residents of Greenwood gather at the hotel. They're at the Stratford Hotel and they know that Dick Rowland is in danger and they want to go and they want to make sure that they that he's safe and nothing goes crazy because these are people from the South. They know what could happen. Now, the younger men who were mostly veterans from World War I, these men have seen war, they know how to fire weapons, they are about that action. They were ready to arm up and defend Dick, because a lot of them were probably in the same age group, possibly went to school with Dick. So they were ready to go and defend him, in the words of Brother Malcolm X, by any means necessary, Now, the older men in the town who had been there for a while, they were the richer, they were the upper class. They were trying to calm the young men down because they knew if you go up there with guns, these people, these white people are going to freak out. So let's just calm down and see what we can do now there was more discussion and someone's you know brought up the lynching of the white man that that was accused of murder and more conversations went went around so it was finally decided that they were going to go up to Greenwood so about 9 30 a group of approximately about 50 or 60 black men armed with rifles and shotguns arrived at the jail and the courthouse to support the sheriff and his deputies and defend Roland from the mob. Now, several witnesses at the grand jury said that they were the black men were following orders of Sheriff McCullough, who at the grand jury said, I did not call these people to come up here. I never said that. I did not ask them to come here. Now, upon seeing the armed Black men of Greenwood, some of the white Tulsa residents ran home to get their own guns, and others headed to break into the National Guard armory with plans to steal the weapons inside. Now, when the 180th Infantry Regiment learned about the mounting situation downtown and the possibility of a break-in, National Guard members got to work. They put on their uniforms and reported quickly to the armory. Now, when a group of whites arrived and began pulling at the grating on the window, uh, the commanding officer went outside to confront the crowd of 300 to 400 men. So keep that in mind, only 50 to 60 men from Greenwood showed up. At this time, there were three to 400 white men trying to break into the National Guard armory and steal guns to confront these 50 or 60 men.
0: So it's mob violence at this point, really. At
1: this point, and there's a really good quote, beware the decisions of large crowds of stupid people. Mm. So they, you know, the commanding officer of the National Guard and who was defending the armory said, I'm going to shoot anybody who tries to break in here. So I suggest you guys back up. Now, 10 p.m., the crowd at the courthouse was getting larger, and the residents of Greenwood were growing more and more concerned. So another group of armed Black men drive up to the courthouse just to assess the scene. Now, at this point, we have two separate incidents that happen simultaneously. And you have to understand the layout of the land. The courthouse is almost right next to the railroad tracks. So they're steps away from Greenwood. So people from Greenwood could kind of see what's going on. The shop owners, the mob can kind of see what they're doing over there. So in one account, and this is from the Tulsa Commission, states that the Black men of Greenwood we would we just dispersing they saw what they needed to see um the sheriff confirmed that dick roland would be sh- would be fine he'd be safe people are going home and as they were dispersing an older white man came up to a young world war one veteran and tried to physically disarm him mm. and then in the word and it caused the shot to go off and then in the words of sheriff mccullough all hell broke loose At the end of the exchange, the gunfire, 12 people were dead, 10 white men and two black men. Now, the other incident is coming from Eloise Taylor Butler, who is the daughter of Peg Leg Taylor, who lived in Greenwood. He was a very well-known man in the town. Now, she states that the black shop owners on Archer Street, which is directly across from the, the railroad tracks and everything that's going on, that peg leg Taylor and his friends saw six white men attacking a black man who was just walking by himself so the shop owners were like oh no this is not gonna happen not here so they run out to his defense and they start shooting some of the men but then all at once these two separate incidents is merged into one and it seemed like the mob turned its eyes on Greenwood
0: Oh my yeah, and say say all hell broke loose.
1: Sheriff McCullough was right. Now, from eleven o'clock to midnight, and I think this is where we get the two cooperate corrobor- the two different stories. Is what happened was there was a rolling gunfight between the black men of Greenwood, and I'm glad this is coming out because it's just it's sad. The story is sad, but to know that people were fighting back to defend their home it warms my heart just a little bit. No one, violence is not the answer, but in this case, it just happened to be. Now, a rolling gunfight between the white mob of 300 to 400 people, which was swelling by the person, and 50 to about 75 armed Black men came rolling into Greenwood. Now, as the men were running towards their home, the mob stopped to loot local stores for more weapons and ammunition along the way bystanders many of whom were leaving the movie theater were caught off guard and the prom had been canceled I have to digress the prom by this time had been canceled so the children were at home but people were still going to the movies and and seeing what was going on now these people coming out of movies and shops were being attacked now, panic set in as the white mob began firing on any black person in the crowd. Not this rolling gunfight of armed man versus armed man. Any black person was getting shot. Now, the white mob also killed at least one white man in the confusion of what was going on. And that's according to the Oklahoma Historical Society. And some of the mob were deputized by the police. Mm. And the going saying was, if you get a gun, you can get an N-word. And I will allow Mm. you to fill that in.
0: So it was open season.
1: Yes. Now, over the next two hours, white men began looting downtown amid continuous random gunfire. Um, they after being denied arms at the armory, the police chief calls in all available officers, local guardsmen are dispatched and hundreds of civilians are commissioned, like I said, as special deputies to assess or corral what's going on in in Greenwood, and the Black residents go deeper into their district to find some safety. Now, on June 1st, 1921, at 1.30 a.m., signatures are secured um, by Governor J.B.A. Robertson to deploy the national troops from Oklahoma City. Now, in the next few hours, rumors persist in the white community that uh, black residents from Muskogee are coming to join the fight. Squads of policemen and these just random deputized white men are roaming the streets in borrowed automobiles, rounding up black servants from the white parts of town, claiming that they're looking for invaders. So they're in their own section of town looking for Black people, domestics who are working. They're riding through Greenville, just picking up Black people, shooting Black people at random. A gunfight breaks out between Black and white neighborhoods on North Detroit Avenue, so they're going back and forth. Now, around dawn, a force of white citizens, police, and the National Guard move into Greenwood under orders to take in protective and I say in quotes, mm-hmm. protective custody, unarmed black residents and subdue any of those who resist.
0: Well it I'll takes, tell you what, anytime somebody says they're going to take me into protective custody, I'm running the other way.
1: And I want to know for whose protection
0: because it's exactly. sure not mine. <laughs>
1: Now, Mount Zion Baptist Church is set on fire after armed men inside refuse to surrender. Along the Frisco Railroad tracks, an angry horde of a thousand white residents pushed through police lines just to invade Greenwood and loot and burn and take as much as they can. Now, six aircrafts, and they're probably JN... Uh, four biplanes are sent into the sky. Now, local authorities say that they're for recognizance, but people on the ground and survivors of Greenwood and its residents uh, say that they were dropping kerosene bombs on, on, on the town itself. They clearly remember that. Now, as dawn broke on June 1st, thousands of white citizens continued. They just did not stop coming into Greenwood and burning homes over the 35 city blocks. Firefighters who arrived to help to put out fires testified that rioters threatened them with guns and forced them to leave. Black residents were forced to march to the convention hall, now what's called the Brady Theater, with their hands in the air. And later they're taken to McNulty Park on 10th Street and Elgin Avenue, um, which was the fairgrounds. on Admiral Boulevard and Lewis Avenue as well. Some of them are released after a white person vouches for them, and others are kept up to eight days. Now, you have to think about it. These, some of these people were millionaires. Doctors, dentists, teachers, wealthy people were held in this shanty camp for up to eight days because they would not have a white person to vouch for them because they didn't work for anyone. They mm-hmm. worked in their city. So they just had to. They didn't know if their family members were alive or dead, where their kids were. If you weren't together, you don't know what is going on. Now, those who remained, and I want to keep saying that the, a lot of these people were very wealthy. They were put to work as standard laborers and they were not paid and they had to clean up greenwood now
0: these are people (laughs) okay these this is the 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 city that has been ravaged and looted and burned by white people however the people who have been wronged have to go in and clean up greenwood what what Mm -hmm. was left of it It is probably very little that we as we well know but they have to clean up after the looters and the burners and the killers and all the Okay. I'm. Um, anyway, I'm flabbergasted. And as, Go on.
1: And as frivolous as it sounds, think of being the wife of a millionaire, knowing that you have staff, you don't cook, you don't clean, you don't use the shovel. So you're wondering how, where is your, where's all of your things? And someone's just shoving a shovel in your hand and saying, well, you have to clean up.
0: Well, and where are all your things? They've been <laughs> stolen they? by some white person and they've made off with them before they burned down the house. My God.
1: Now more than 1.5 million in real estate and 750,000 in personal property were destroyed. And that's in 1920 money. In our that's the equivalent today of 32.65 million.
0: Dollars, and that's why, again, Courtney, that million dollars that the philanthropist gave to the three surviving <laughs> uh, uh, survivors of the Tulsa massacre—that is like giving somebody a dollar compared to what they lost.
1: Mm-hmm. And those those people were little children when it happened. Yes, so. Now, by mid-morning on June 1st, the violence finally subsides. The Tulsa National Guard members and its reinforcement units from Oklahoma City, Bartlesville, and other communities begin securing the Greenwood area. Governor Robertson declares martial law um, with Adjunct General Charles Barrett in command. Now, the Oklahoma Bureau of Vital Statistics Officially recorded only 36 dead, but a 2001 state commission examination of the events was able to confirm was able to confirm the 36 dead. But that's 26 black, 10 white. However, historians and researchers have the death toll as high as 300. And I'm going to lean in with the historians. Me too.
0: Yeah, I'm with them.
1: Now the mob. Now, the mob destroyed all 35 square blocks of the city, including the business district. The newspaper that I told, two newspapers are gone. The school is gone. The library, the hospital, the churches, all the hotels, the stores, the businesses are gone. 1,200 homes are gone. Um, So in this, while a handful of Black people were charged With riot-related offenses, no white Tulsa resident was charged with looting or murder. Now, in 2001, in the report from the Tulsa Race Riot Commission, that's when it was formed, it concluded itself, eventually they admitted, that between 100 and 300 people were killed. So eventually they recanted on that 36 and just went ahead and said 300 people of African-American descent were killed. But more than 8,000 people were made homeless in those 18 hours in 1921. Now, it it goes to show a lot of times that they think it may have started with Dick Rowland, but it was really jealousy that caused these people to pour into that neighborhood white people were resentful of the growth that they saw just across the railroad tracks and they saw that greenwood was expanding into white areas and white neighborhoods according to several newspapers and articles at the time there were reports of hateful letters sent to prominent prominent business leaders within Black Wall Street demanding that they stop overstepping their bounds into the white portion of Tulsa. Now, on June 1st, 2021, the 100th anniversary of the massacre, President Joe Biden visited the area and he was the first sitting president to do so. And during his visit, he made the speech in which he stated some injustices are so heinous, so horrific, so grievous that they cannot be buried no matter how hard people try. Biden toured the Greenwood Cultural Center and met with survivors, those ones that were awarded that money from the philanthropist, Viola Fletcher, Hughes Van Ellis, Leslie Bingfield, Randall. But as you mentioned earlier, Aunt Carol, the last living residents of Greenwood were given back that small portion of what they lost. But in my mind, it will never, ever, ever be enough.
0: And remember, that was not reparation that was given by the state uh, of Oklahoma or the city of Tulsa. That was just a kind gesture from a philanthropist And uh, I guess who somehow or another was laid on his heart to try to do something to make up for this grievous and egregious situation that had happened back in 1921. Now, considering there is such a well-documented timeline of the Tulsa massacre, just as you have outlined it for us, Courtney, it's criminal that it took over 100 years for it to become better known. Now, of course, Tulsa is a horrific story of violence and terror, but we need to remember it's only one of hundreds of documented instances throughout America's history showing a consistent pattern of black advancement being met with white supremacist violence. Just as you said, Courtney, the suspicion is Dick Rowland's actions really just triggered the jealousy and anger that whites held against this community. And that was all it took to set them off, to destroy it. Now you and I have talked about some of these um, violent incidents in previous episodes, and we encourage our listeners to check the archives to hear about them. And in those episodes, they recount how throughout the 20th century, Racists have bombed Black churches. They've terrorized civil rights activists. They've lynched and murdered countless Black people. In fact, uh, the record, uh, what we know about lynching, it's almost 5,000 people uh, recorded as being lynched and so many more that we don't know about. Uh, they've appropriate had their lands appropriated and properties of the murdered were basically taken with impunity and with few if any punishment or repercussion for these misdeeds
1: and carol the shooting of mostly black people in buffalo new york sounds like history is repeating itself i hope there's not a podcast 50 or 100 years from now still doing episodes on Black massacres. I hope that it's not. Now, the shooter's writings are filled with racist memes about Black Americans. In fact, reporters have done searches on his social media posts beginning in 2021, and the words Blacks and the N-word appear a 100 times. He also opened an online chat log moments before the massacre where he detailed his three recognizant visits so this is not one day I just snapped this man hunted the elderly the old he and the main grocery store for these people to eat he knew what he was doing He did reconnaissance to visit tops and how he was able to pinpoint the store's busiest times through Google Maps. I I do that all the time to see when the nail shop is busy, but he did it to plot and hunt the murder of our elders, of Black elders in this community. What's even scarier, even scarier than that, 15 people join that chat and no one, no one reported the crime as if they were watching a first-person shooter video game. So there's no doubt, like I said, this isn't a one day, I just lost it. This man, this this horrific villain of history, he knew what he was doing. He knew where he was going and he decided to publicize it to a willing audience. Just as the mob in Tulsa, people cheered as Black
0: people died. You're on point, my dear niece. Black people have long understood that violence against them is organized and it is intentional. Now, it seems that academia and the general public are finally waking up to this fact For example, in response to the Buffalo shootings, Bernard Powers at the College of Charleston Center for the Study of Slavery said, quote, this is the product of America's culture of violence. It's deeply entrenched racism. The shooting cannot be separated from it. It's the product of the unwillingness of most white Americans to deal with and address white supremacy and white supremacist tendencies in their own communities. The refusal to face up to it.
1: The violence is getting worse because people like the Buffalo shooter believe in something called the great replacement. And they have places where people can listen to them on line. He was radicalized online. I saw somewhere where his aunt blamed COVID. Ma'am, this was not COVID. He felt this way. And he found a, a community of people that like how we gather around to give knowledge. He found a community of people who believe in this theory that bolstered him and gave him the boldness to do such a cowardice act.
0: Yes, yes, Courtney, that seems to be the case. And although fear of Black autonomy and power in the country has long existed, Great Replacement began to take shape as a definitive theory in the late 19th century, and it's just been rolling forward to this guy. Professor Manisha Sinha of the University of Connecticut explains it this way, Professor Sinha goes on to say, you have a situation where people in the post-war South just cannot accept the idea of people of African descent as equal citizens and fellow citizens in the Republic. This kind of racist opposition to Black rights and Black citizenship is one of the long lingering legacies and afterlife of slavery in this country. So you have this huge campaign of racist terror. So this
1: poison has been around a long time, and I get this eerie feeling that the great replacement also ties into the recently leaked Supreme Court opinion wiping out Roe v. Wade, which upholds a woman's right to have an abortion.
0: Well, correct again, my dear niece, it's not a far leap to make that assumption. Now, in that leaked opinion that was authored by conservative Justice Samuel Alito, he argues that, quote, modern developments, including the availability of safe haven laws, which allow parents to anonymously relinquish babies without legal repercussions, have rendered abortion unnecessary. The opinion noted that a woman, quote, who puts her newborn up for adoption today has little reason to fear that the baby will not find a suitable home. Now, the right wing Supreme Court justices also argue that falling adoption rates are part of the justification for recriminalizing abortion.
1: And since the highest number of abortions are among white women, Theoretically, criminalizing abortion would mean more white babies would be born and available for adoption by suitable parents. Now, that smells like eugenics.
0: (laughs) Yep, yep, yep. Since predictions say that by 2045, whites will be in the minority in America, if more white babies are born, that supposedly would help stem the tide of the drop in white population. Now, the most recent census data suggests the raw number of whites in the U.S. declined for the first time in history this past decade, bringing the overall percentage below 60% for the first time. And also of note, over 400 counties in America now have white minorities.
1: And Carol, there's definitely a shift going on, but science, sociology, sociology economics, and geo politics all prove there is no plot to replace white americans with non-whites whatever changes are happening are due to entirely natural and predictable
0: forces i agree courtney but science sociology economics and geopolitics are based on facts and testable theories Now, people bent on massacring innocent people because of the color of their skin and bizarre theories like great replacement aren't rational or swayed by facts. Now, although it sounds almost
1: hopeless that hate crimes can be prevented, Aunt Carol, there are some steps being taken
0: to address this issue, right? Well, yeah, there are a few, a few. Uh, For example, the Justice Department has a litany of initiatives that they're doing to address and prevent hate crimes and hate incidents, and some of those include this. One step is that they have released close to $21 million in grant funding to state and local partners to investigate and prosecute hate crimes and assist hate crime victims. Now, they are also working with the Department of Education, itch- issuing fact sheets, addressing harassment and discrimination in schools. So trying to help people at the school level to understand uh, hate crimes and uh, si- what the si- signals are that that's occurring. Uh, they have launched an FBI-led national anti-hate crimes campaign that is involving all 56 of the FBI field offices to encourage reporting. Uh, So there's that campaign includes outdoor advertising, billboards, radio streaming, and uh, information on social media. And they also have uh, worked to ensure that all states now uh, become certified for participation in the FBI's uniform crime reporting national incident-based reporting system, uh, because that way they can share information across state lines and uh, not have, for, for example, somebody who's known as a hate crime uh, offender, he would be able to be identified uh, nationally and not just in one state. So there are some of the steps that are being done, Courtney, but so much more needs to be done since these steps only scratch the surface of dealing with racially motivated hate crimes, racially motivated mass murder, and racially motivated terrorism.
1: You're absolutely right, Aunt Carol. Hate crimes need to be addressed more seriously, but hopefully these steps are a stepping stone moving forward. But that brings this episode to a close. We have a little bit of information to share with our listeners. We now will be uploading episodes every other week. So you can catch up if you miss or you can create your own backlog. But new episodes will be coming every other Monday also a happy memorial day to everyone and if you're going on a trip and you need something to listen to because you've missed some of our episodes or want to go back to some of the episodes we referenced in this podcast you can always visit our website www.podpage.com slash why are they so angry that brings today's episode to a close We hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and
0: confront it.